this is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance. This is podcast number 80, 80. Uh, with me in Sweden is Johan Edebo. Hi, Johan. Good evening. Uh, Varun Mathur in India. Hello. Hiroyuki Hamada in Long Island, New York. Hi, guys. And Corey Morningstar is back with us uh, from the greater Toronto area. Hi, Corey. Hi, guys. So um, we're doing this one a little more quickly than uh, we have in the past. Um, before we get into things, I wanted to mention that, that I get an analytics printout from uh, SoundCloud every week about listeners and, and where listeners are located. And it's very interesting. We have listeners all over the world, which fascinates me. We had two people in Micronesia, yeah. um, some in Islamabad, in Madagascar, in South Africa. Uh, you guys should write in and say hi. I'd like to know who and how anyone heard about us in Micronesia. It's very cool. Anyway, feel free to comment on, on the comments, anybody listening from far away places. Um, most people, the vast majority of people who listen to us are from the United States, the UK, Ireland, Germany, and Scandinavia. Uh, that, those are, and, and Canada. Those are the, um, the largest, obviously, English language being a major factor in that. Um, okay, I wanted to talk a bit about, for a variety of reasons, I wanted to talk about culture, American culture, uh, its influence. I wanted, perhaps more specifically, a little bit to talk about art, fine art, but also entertainment, the so-called culture industry, and so forth. Uh, and because it's it's something that I have written about for a long time, and it came up in conversation this week with people I know, and and that is the, the woeful state of arts education. So we'll get to that. We need to talk about the collapse of banks and everything that's going on there, uh, a topic I am not very uh, qualified to talk about in any great depth. Uh, also, the fact that, that this arrest warrant was issued for Putin. Um, and so we can talk about international law, uh, the farce that is international law, which will which will bring up a discussion going back to the Milosevic saga, I think, uh, because because this this parallels the propaganda that was directed at Milosevic is now being directed at Putin, and the parallels are striking. So we'll get to all of those things. Johan. Sure, yeah. Um, so. I thought of approaching, you know, we talked about discussing TV shows on this episode, and I, I thought of approaching them in terms of what uh, 
the French philosopher Jacques Ellul calls integration propaganda, namely how uh, TV shows play the role in this indirect ideological education by fostering our um, adherence to certain values and uh, authorities, and also by reproducing these uh, foundational myths of our culture. And it also connects the simplification of, of art, the, the loss of subtlety, the loss of nuance in, 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 in discussions of morality and these kinds of things. So, but anyway, Jan, you, you mentioned you had been exploring this uh, this FBI series with the, the title of FBI, and you had some, <laughs> some reflections. You, you had some thoughts about how yeah. it framed this well, policy, yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the, perhaps the most famous and successful uh, showrunner, producer, show creator in Hollywood is Dick Wolf. There are others, but Dick Wolf has an extraordinary uh, track record of success and currently has, I don't countless shows, franchises that are in their sixth, seventh, eighth, 10th, 16th year. He came up with Law and Order of which there have been about six spin-offs. And he has the, the one that I wanted to talk about and, and FBI, FBI, FBI Most Wanted and FBI International. Interestingly, I believe they all uh, air on the same evening, one after the other, or they did anyway. Uh, 40 minute, what they call hour dramas, but with commercial interruption, that's 42 minutes, I think. They are the same show. FBI, FBI Most Wanted and FBI International are identical to each other. FBI International is about a mythic fly squad, you know, uh, situated in Brussels or somewhere, Hungary, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> because they got tired of filming in the US, I guess. Uh, FBI Most Wanted and FBI are literally identical to each other. Uh, but he also has what is referred to collectively as the Chicago One franchise, that is Chicago PD, Chicago Med, and Chicago Fire, about a Chicago hospital, it's a medical show, Chicago PD obviously is a cop show, Chicago Fire is about the fire department in Chicago. Uh, these are our shows, i.e. 42 minute shows, and they've all been very successful and they're in their sixth, seventh, eighth season, I forget. There's several interesting things to say at the beginning of the Chicago franchise. The first is that nobody speaks with a Chicago accent. Uh, the shows manufacture a kind of mythic Chicago that doesn't really resemble Chicago, although great amounts of effort and verbiage are devoted to pretending that this is a real Chicago, that this represents the heartland and uh, that, that it's a very special place and Chicagoans uh, share this commonality and sense of community and all of these, except that nobody talks with a Chicago accent, not a single character. And Chicago accents are very specific the, the South Side accent is a bit like New York's Brooklyn accent. TH becomes D. There's that famous Saturday Night Live skit about the bears. Uh, 
and it's it actually is very accurate. That's that's a, only a slightly exaggerated version of that that Chicago accent. One two three. That's Chicago, uh, but not on this show. Everybody speaks with a perfect mid-Atlantic non-accent. Okay, so so we have that factor, which I think is of some importance. But I happened to watch the FBI show this week, the current episode. I, I watch all this stuff for a variety of reasons. Uh, more than fascination, I know people involved and there's that, but within, I think it was, it may have been FBI International, I forget, doesn't matter. Within one show, they managed to uh, underscore and demonize, you know, the demonization of Putin, what an evil, ruthless, bloodthirsty dictator he was and what a threat to humanity he was. They managed to underscore the heroic fight against COVID in American hospitals. Uh, and, and there's a constant ongoing valorization of the American military and nearly every character in every one of these shows, male character, but some female too, their backstory includes tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, invariably, almost all of them. It's a given, it's an automatic. These are the male figures, the protagonists, the heroes, the symbols of courage, honor, sexiness, they all are former, former soldiers. They all fought in these imperialist wars. There is never any doubt or, you know, nobody ever suffers from, from you know, crippling injuries or PTSD or anything of the sort. Um, if, if a particular storyline happens to include a traumatized veteran, it's seen as an exception and that veteran is immediately cared for and given, you know, a huge amount of, of concern and, and help and support from former vets, you know, colleagues, uh, the, the Veterans Administration, the government. Nobody ever, ever suffers for long if they're a veteran. So you get this picture painted of you know enormous government support for for former soldiers, all of which, of course, is completely mythical. Now this is obvious stuff. I'm I'm not telling any of you anything you don't already know. I just think that it is worth mentioning again that these kinds of shows serve as recruitment oh, yeah. films. For the U.S. military, it's a volunteer army. Volunteers are down; numbers are down. The U.S. military needs more soldiers. There's talk being floated again of a draft, which I don't think will happen. But uh, these shows certainly paint a picture of the military as as what every young man and woman would want to do mm -hmm. if they get out of high school before college: go and fight in a faraway land, kill poor dark-skinned people, and return home a hero. Johan, 
No, I, I think this can't really be emphasized enough. I, I think the TV show, not least these sorts of, of shows, are, are key to, to manufacturing consent for U.S. empire. And just as a comparison, because we watch this all over the West, so just imagine if we in, in Sweden were sitting watching a, a Chinese show about this Chinese secret police headquartered in, in Brussels doing <laughs> these various cool special ops around the world in support of Chinese geostrategic objectives. I mean, we, we wouldn't really swallow that, would we? So, you know, I, also yeah. I, I can just add, I, I think there's, all, uh, there's been a change, there's been a development in, in the, the character of these sorts of, of uh, cultural products. I remember watching the X-Files when I was a kid, and it had these aspects, it had these clear propaganda aspects, because it, it reproduced this perspective on the corporate state as your guardian navigating this this occult hidden world of, of aliens and, and awesome power for your benefit but there was this tension in the narrative structure that to me opened up this conceptual space of distrust that allowed you to, to ask serious questions about the integrity and intentions of the, the, the powers that be and I, I think this nuance is lacking the, this conceptual space of, of, of questioning you, you don't really see that anymore there's no nuance no and and certainly i probably have said this before but if you go back in hollywood features hollywood movies to the 60s and 70s there were still directors that could be seen as auteurs as as independent uh, artists making, yes, commercial films, genre films. I th always think of John Borman in 1961, I think it was, mm. was it 61, 64? I forget, making Point Blank with Lee Marvin. This is something of a masterpiece. And Borman was interviewed in the late 80s, I think it was, along with Brian De Palma. And Borman said, oh my God, I could not make that film today. This is just in the late eighties. He said, I, there is no way that script as hard edged and existential and, mm -hmm. and, and pessimistic as it was could ever be made today. Uh, a film like Bullet, Steve McQueen, Peter Yates directed, mm -hmm. famous for that car chase in San Francisco. It's not a great film. I watched it again not too long ago. It's actually not a very good film, but it is also existential, pessimistic, yeah. strangely minimal in 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 its in its uh, character development. There's no there's no private like characters have no private life outside of their professional ones. Uh, David Mamet, who's a raging fascist, of course, but an extraordinarily talented writer, I have to admit, or was, made a film called Homicide uh, with Joe Mantegna and many years ago now. And it, it's, worth, it's worth watching because it's actually a rather remarkable script. And it's remarkable because really that character, that cop that Mantegna plays is a sociopath in many ways, even though he's treated very sympathetically, even though he has a kind of conscience, which contradicts the sociopathic part, but never mind. But the point is you, 
he has no life except his mm -hmm. life as a policeman. And it's it's a it'd be an interesting film to revisit and and talk about, I think. But the point being that that yes, of course, things have changed dramatically. I've talked about this before in the, the 1977 being the, the watershed moment when <clears throat> Friedkin's film flopped and Star Wars became a hit. And everything after that followed that template of, of uh, fantasy and superhero. But it also marked the end of film art in other ways. Uh, part of this is technological that people, I remember teaching at the film school realized that every night I could look at the dorms and, and go to any room of any student of mine and people would be sitting around streaming films on their laptops. That's how they consumed film. Hmm. And they did it in a fragmented piecemeal fashion. And it signaled a certain kind of change because you didn't go into that large dark room to watch and everything was digital, of course. You're no longer watching the flickering screen that uh, uh, all the early French theoreticians uh, spoke about. It, that, that era that gave us Antonioni and Bresson and Bergman and Ozu and all the way to Bertolucci, and that's gone, that's all dead. That's not possible anymore. And this is what I wanted to start to talk about a bit too, eventually tonight. <clears throat> the reasons for that not being possible exceed a discussion of film. It, it, it bleeds into a whole discussion of society at large and what Western culture now expects from art in quotation marks, what people think art is in any medium that you can think of and 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 how how the academia how the teaching of art has deteriorated so dramatically and this is something i think is is hugely important because if you read even if you just read in fine arts gallery copy the the whatever is you know, if somebody has a new show opening at a gallery, somebody writes copy for it about the artist and his work, the quality of that writing has deteriorated profoundly. And this becomes a very theoretical and probably too dense topic in a sense for, for a podcast, but it's something um, I wanted to touch on. Okay, um, comments from people? So I, I'm talking about this um, sociopathic sensibility you mentioned, John. Isn't that kind of emblematic of the difference between, well, pre and post 9-11 cop shows? These the, the later after 9-11, I think we get these militarized propaganda cop shows, you know, like 24 Homeland Blacklist kind of, of stuff. And I think there's a huge difference between even Law and Order, maybe Miami Vice, and these Canon and Columbo shows from the 70s. So, so what, what's, what happens here? What's the, what's the transition about? Well, <clears throat> Law and Order, actually, I believe, is a Dick Wolf show, too, interestingly. Yeah. But, but you had an era 
in which uh, shows like Hill Street Blues appeared that marked this kind of ensemble drama that humanized police and mm -hmm. they were seen as having problems. You focused a lot on the home life of these cops, the backstory. That became more important than solving the crime. If you go back, interestingly, to the early days of television, I feel like I've said this before, but, but at the very beginning, in the 1950s, they shot a lot of stuff live. And most of that is lost, but some of it still exists. You can find uh, in the archives of various places, Firestone Theater and so forth. And they were half hour dramas, some of them, many were hour dramas. Having, and they just hired writers. The, the hmm. networks hired a writer who said, write an hour show. I've talked to these old guys who were writers and they said, yeah, nobody interfered with us. We just wrote the show and the director shot it and they cast who they wanted. This was the early days of television. Mm -hmm. If you can go back and find some of those shows and watch them. This was true in England too, by the way. Uh, uh, there was a British drama series, God, and I can't think of the name of it. I wrote about it the other day. And you see like very young, a teenage Ray Winstone was in one of them. Uh, all written by playwrights. Remarkable stuff, great stuff, because the network didn't interfere. They didn't care what it was. It was just product. Mm. They needed to fill up airtime. The, the change happened at the beginning of the 60s. It was ushered in by Dragnet, the Jack Webb mm. show, uh, that was the first kind of fascist cop show. Webb is a really fascinating character, by the way. And by the 60s, The Untouchables appeared, was an enormous hit with Robert Stack. And that was the beginning of a franchise, mm -hmm. a certain like very strict template that was going to be followed. And it, it signaled the beginning of this kind of viewing habit that was being uh, encouraged and instilled in people. Mm -hmm that has culminated in a kind of pattern recognition today, um, mm. as my friend Chris Rossi puts it, who's a writer. It, I think it doesn't matter very much what anyone mm. says or does in these shows. It's the form, it's the, it's, it's the rhythm of, it's the length of scenes, the, the way in which you have a pre-credit sequence that sets up the mystery or the crime, credits followed by ensemble meeting of main characters. They lay out exactly what's going to happen in the next 40 minutes so there's no surprises and then we see it happen. Uh, the, the, this was more true in comedy, by the way, in which I remember I actually was a staff writer very briefly for a comedy show. I was not very funny, but uh, that's why I was never rehired. But, but we all sat around talking about it didn't, as long as the rhythm of the joke was there, it didn't matter what was said. You could tell the joke in Albanian and people would probably laugh because it would be a laugh track. It would be expected. They would recognize the star or the character saying it. And 
two was tragic, three was comedy. All jokes are predicated on three, right? Guy walks into a bar, guy walks into a bar. It's the third guy that walks into a bar that's funny. Two, guy walks into a bar. Second guy walks into a bar. If you stop there, it's tragic. These are the kind of lessons of, of the culture industry, I guess. Anyway, okay. Uh, so yes, it changed and it became more and more jingoistic, more mm. and more uh, pro-war, pro-military. That, that uptick in the militarism of television, uh, which was signaled, I think, by 24, and certainly Homeland, mm. uh, that has increased dramatically, hugely. Shows are just drenched in, in pro-militarism, pro-war, pro-US foreign policy. Look at, watch a show like Madam Secretary about a character who is, I don't know what she is. Uh, she's not Secretary of State, but she's like Assistant Secretary, something like that. It's an unbelievable piece of like historical revisionism. You know, they, they have Madeleine Albright was played a cameo as herself on one episode, which should tell you everything you need to know about that. Okay, uh, other other topics related to this before we get in more into, because I can go on and never stop if I'm talking about art education here. Uh, Corey. Well, I actually wanted to sort of jump back onto smart, not smart, yes, smart cities now called uh, 15 Minute Cities, yes. because I missed yes. last week. I was able to listen to the podcast, so thanks, great job. And um, I wanted to sort of pick up where Hiroyuki um, sort of touched upon it, that about the corporate sort of capture of um, civil society via the 15 minute city. So I wanted to talk about that for maybe five or 10 minutes. And then yeah. maybe you guys, okay, so um, I, okay, so where to begin? So my understanding of um, 15 minute city. So the smart city, which sort of came in Toronto, um, there was a huge backlash against it. And it was called Sidewalk Labs owned by Google Alphabet. And it was um, dropped because there was so much backlash against it. So the smart city is um, the concept of something that can be quantified and controlled. And that's what 15 minute cities are smart cities re repackaged. So in other words, quantified and controlled means if you can measure it, you can monetize it. Okay, so the great reset of the global economy in, in which 15 minute cities is to be a vital component, that is the privatization and digitalization of all services global in scale within a global surveillance infrastructure, which we've talked about lots of times on the podcast. The Great Reset, inclusive of the building of the 15-minute cities, is the great theft of treasuries global in scale, the full privatization of all services in life. And a lot of this they want in place by 2030, um, which most of us um, are aware. What, what is that called, the term? Um, oh, come on, you guys. You know, the, the um, agenda, tw tw whatever, you, you guys know what I'm talking about. Um, you know, the United Nations. 2030, agenda 2030. Yeah, is that what it's, there's a, yeah. a term for it. Anyway, um, everything to be sold as a service 
with the exception of the ruling classes who will still accumulate all their luxury goods, they'll still travel and they'll still accumulate their property. Um, those and the same classes of people and corporations will own nature and trade it on the stock market. And again, we've talked about that. So the purpose of the 15 minute city um, is to extract more profit, expand control. And obviously this should be expected as this is how capitalism functions, right? Always seeking and requiring new markets. Um, so the smart cities, which, um, you know, we're not really embraced, have been reframed not as techno, techno utopias, but as basically almost like um, marketed as retreats, right, with an emphasis on nature and birds and bees and rather than data. And so this is marketing, right, to gain the public acceptance and even demand, like what um basically Thunberg does, right? She actually creates demand for the very things they want to sell us. And so by highlighting, like even in the renderings and the drawings they do, they're just packed now with, with all this stuff, right? So by highlighting human life and desire, plant life and the natural root, a natural world, sorry, you remove the focus of technology, right? Which people now are starting to, um, you know, see sort of the danger. So where um, this is headed. Um, so in Toronto, so now you have the Mars Discover Discovery District, and that's um, who's now taken over that project. It was like a billion dollar project. Um, I think it started 2018 or 2019. So this is an NGO founded by um, public and private funders, and it's built as North America's largest urban innovation hub. It's also described as a public-private uh, public partnership and char charitable trust. Um, so whatever, whatever when you want to describe it, but it, it's interesting that the smart city term was actually coined by IBM and here what you see that um, the Mars Discovery District, if you look in under their 200 plus corporate partners, um, partners with government, academia, they include IBM and Microsoft. So what they do now, they've taken a seat in the background, IBM, Microsoft, or they're in the back and then they have the, you know, community driven NGO type thing, civil society at the front. So again, if people can understand, it makes it a lot easier. People can see NGOs um, as an instrument and often even an arm, a corporate power and ruling classes. You can see things a lot more clearly. Um, but it's funny because as we know, NGOs have been framed you know, for decades now is sort of benign, selfless institutions. And so that makes them, um, you know, far better choice to push these types of projects over um, forward. Um, for example, the CEO of that Mars, I was just talking about the Mars Discovery District, and back in 2010 was making over half a million dollars a year. So it's not like they're not volunteer, you know, sac people at sacrifice, right? Um, and anyway, and then you get uh, the C40 cities, which were created by Bloomberg and Clinton. Um, I'm not sure what year, I don't have it at the top of my head, but that was, they were created because they knew to make all this happen, they were going to have to, you know, have um, a way to influence and capture the municipal level governments, which formerly you had more, you know, on a, at a municipal level, level government, it was easier to create change. Um, and that's what, what I found anyway, um, in my own personal life experience. And then you guys, 
touched upon this. I mean, it sounds great, right? We all want these things. There's amazing communities, and especially um, Jasmine, my daughter, she lived in Toronto and different communities, like including Cabbage Town. And it's great. You know, you don't need a car. You can use the streetcars. You can use the subway. You don't have to go anything for anywhere for anything. Everything's right there in your neighborhood. And there's, you know, tons of small family business and little cafes and everything spills out onto the street. Like it's, it's really great. And they take these things that we love and then they use them to sell us back um, this vision which is an actual corporate vision. Not it, I mean, these people don't care about, about, you know, communities. They don't care about us. They don't care about our children. And all you have to look, again, things we've talked about on this podcast before, right? Johnson Johnson selling sunscreen with benzene for you to put on your children. Coca-Cola now has been sued for, um, they're simply natural orange juice, right? That where people buy and give it to their kids to drink. And that's loaded apparently with toxic and it's called PFAS levels, which are also called forever chemicals. And you've got Quaker oats with, you know, selling their oats with that Roundup chemical lysophate, right? And they don't recall them. Um, they're marketed to your family. And if it's more profitable to save one-tenth of a penny in the long run, right? On billions of units that they sell compared to what they would possibly have to pay out in lawsuits, they're fine with selling you poison, right? To um, be to your family. And because they're legally bound to protect their shareholders and not, you know, not citizens and not the environment. So the idea that you're, we're going to give corporations more reach and more power over it, over us is, you know, really mind blowing, breathtaking as John always says, breathtaking. Um, as an example, Trudeau, recently met with um, premiers on um, healthcare, and that included discussions of them having to agree to adopt digital ID for healthcare as a condition of receiving federal funds, right? So even if you're not on board, you're going to be like coerced even on at that level, you know, into things, into these things being built. So smart cities don't go, they didn't go away. It's repackaged. And that's what we see with all kinds of things. Like, um, for instance, I remember in, in the 90s, early 2000s, um, so much talk against genetic engineering, right? GMO food. And where's that gone? That's, that doesn't even exist anymore, right? Well, now we're turning and yeah, yeah, sorry, go no, ahead. I just wanted to, no, no, I just wanted to say that uh, this is an interesting, and, I, and then Varu, I know, wants to say something. Um, GM Foods is a really great example of there is this illusion that that the GM project was derailed somehow, was stopped, that mm -hmm. that, that uh, uh, consumer advocacy and organization put an end to all of these different things, certain pesticides, GM seeds. But it didn't, and this is this is this illusion exists in all areas of public life. It seems in all kinds of various policies affecting us. There is an illusion that reform has taken place, but usually it hasn't. Not not really, and I think that this is 
bleeds back into this discussion about culture and conditioning and how people process the news they receive and, and the information they get. And we're certainly seeing it with um, the war propaganda currently, which I wanna talk about at some point tonight because it is reaching levels of psychopathy that I didn't think was possible in, in public discourse. Uh, Sean Penn mentions the two, no, the overly cautious use of nuclear weapons. <laughs> uh, you know, in a, in a normal world, he would be locked up for that. That's crazy talk. Uh, Varun? Yeah, I just wanted to add um, to what Corey and you just said. Um, about the use of language and how that's being used. I mean, how that's that's helping monetize and basically take away um, control of how society functions in the sense that neighborhoods have always had these kind of sort of microeconomies like Corey was right. mentioning, right. Right? right? And just by saying, just by using this kind of fancy language of sustainable architecture, and so on it's it makes it possible for them to say that it's a new idea except that all they're doing is infiltrating the core relationships of society itself and monetizing them like she was saying Absolutely. right so, yeah. and in that sense that it it's basically what they've done with every other aspect of human life mm -hmm. is that they've they've provided a, a, a monetizable financialization of of all of these aspects of human function under repackaged language, basically, which allows them to create profits out of thin air, mm -hmm. basically on the right. backs of people, right? Mm -hmm. So that's really no, scary. Absolutely, absolutely. Because I mean, there's all, like, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, like you were pointing out that there is actually no reform. It's actually a degradation because everything comes to a standstill. The organic, the organic trajectory of human relationships is killed and yeah. is replaced by this filter of this corporatocracy for profit making. Yeah. Mm. So, um, yeah, Johan? These are, yeah, these absolutely. are brilliant, brilliant observations of all of you, I think. And I, I just had a reflection uh, in relation to what you said, Corey, on, on this 15 minute smart city phenomenon, this company store basically, because you know the, the, the key, one of the key problems for capitalism and within capitalism is, is what Marx and many others identified as the falling rate of profit. So that there's a tendency for the rate of profit to, to fall over time. So you get less profit from capital invested. And nobody's really exactly sure why this happens, but there seems to be a tendency uh, towards the, the expansion of, of uh, workers' power in some sense to, to sidetrack exploitation. And the, the the 15 minute smart city solution coupled with digital currencies and all of that sort of, of uh, side, it suppresses all these uh, mechanisms towards the falling rate of profit. So, so you, in effect, you, you get a situation where, where capitalism can sustain itself indefinitely. There are, are six factors that marks um, sites that that would tend to raise the race of profit and 
And basically all of these are baked into this 15 minutes smart city solution. So I think that's interesting. Right. Well, it's interesting that we've always had 15 minute cities, that this idea was first floated yeah. by the mayor of Paris is ironic because there is no greater 15 minute city in the world than Paris. Mm. And, but what has happened, one of the things that has happened after the lockdowns, which were, as we've discussed, a retail apocalypse in which mom and pop stores small businesses, private family owned service companies, and restaurants and whatever were wiped out. They went bankrupt, mm. they shuttered and disappeared or they were bought out by corporations. So now the lockdowns are over and we've come up with this great idea, a 15 minute city. So all of those amenities and services though will be corporate owned franchises and will have no other link to the community or the area uh, the way the family-owned business did, which maybe had been in that area for a hundred years, uh, no links to the community. It's entirely imposed from outside. And in a sense, this mirrors what happened in America with the, with the, the, the migration west after World War II and the building of those suburbs uh, uh, across the Southwest and, and into California, which were these horrible, you know, 50 years later are horrible landscape, denuded landscapes of, of misery with badly built houses. All the amenities actually have closed, gone out of business. The infrastructure is crumbling because there's no government support. They are nightmare landscapes now. That's, mm. that's the, the same forces, the same people are the ones trying to sell it anew as a 15 minute city. Corey? I just think that's a really good point you made. I mean, one of the major um, factors about this uh, community, one of the major things should be that whoever's, you know, building this community, contributing should have to live in it. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. Well, I, of course, yeah. And, and, you know, I think it was my son who, you know, worked. If you're not living in it, it's not your community. Yeah. And he said this. This was, was his point was that when you have areas in which, uh, all the businesses are owned by people outside who don't live in the community and have no history in the community and they are building and hiring and creating the the economy of this community but they are absentee operators you are going to have this hyper alienation and and mm. that this is the this is a recipe for that right of course here are you people yeah, I think that uh, totally makes sense because um, I, I think basically uh, ideas that actually works um, only emerge from authentic uh, social relations based on material reality and historical reality. So um, what the uh, oligarchs must do is um, um, take it all by and repackage that's a strategy and also it's a necessity based on how things work. And, um, and it, it repeats, we can see it in uh, 
all kinds of ways, I think. Well, I think it's interesting that, because I'm gonna bring this back around to popular culture again, as communities and neighborhoods and cities become more alienated, become governed and economically controlled by, by, by corporate, i.e. foreign interests, foreign meaning outside the community, as that increases, the culture industry increases the propaganda that says the opposite. So that you have these mythical communities, this mythical neighborhood, folksy, homey hmm. community that is the location for uh, countless rom-coms, sitcoms, and dramas. And we can take the Chicago template as an example of Chicago where nobody sounds like they're from Chicago or Chicago that doesn't in any way resemble Chicago or the working life of the working class in Chicago. Uh, nothing of the sort, but, but, but these neighborhoods, these fantasies are manufactured over and over and over and over and over. People always live in, it's interesting if you look at friends, for example, a massive hit. Yeah. How did those people afford such a nice apartment, right? Um, rents are out <laughs> of control in New York. No, you know, it, 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 it's prohibitive if, if for a postage stamp sized apartment, but they live in this, you know, and they don't work really, and it's great. Uh, if you go back to the 1950s, look at a show like The Honeymooners, uh, Jackie Gleason, Art Carney, uh, they lived in a dump. It was a real working class apartment. It reflected reality in some way. Even then it was a bit sanitized, but it, it reflected something like the reality for the working class. That is all gone. The working class is invisible and silent in popular culture today, period. Um, Johan, Ben Yeah, on, on, on the community, on, on what Corey said on how, how it's not your community unless you live in it. I thought it segued nicely into this uh, art, this headline I saw on how the White House rejects a, a ceasefire proposal in Ukraine um, in relation to, to increased Chinese mediation. Or maybe I rather should say, you know, Lockheed Martin and Raytheon. Uh, rejects a ceasefire in Ukraine, but but I mean, who who asks the Ukrainians here? I mean, well, what's what's their voice in this context? Uh, the international community maybe rejects the ceasefire, but who who asks the Ukrainians here? Well, it's interesting. I just want to, as an aside, sort of related to that. I did a press TV appearance today. I'll maybe I'll throw it in the links on the announcement that. The High Court in Great Britain has mm. okayed the, uh, uh, the the packaging up asylum seekers and immigrants who have, you know, applying for asylum while they await determination. Uh, they are to be flown to Rwanda. I mean, I'm not making this up. Uh, so if you if you you know travel from a conflict zone created by 
US military or Western mining interests or something where you've been displaced, your community's displaced, or you're escaping a conflict zone, you're desperate and you know these are desperately poor people and they make their way to England, they are going to now be shuttled onto an aircraft, <clears throat> which I is not very green, but okay, and flown 3,500 miles to Rwanda because the British government now has a deal they signed with Paul Kagame, notorious ruthless torturer in chief of Rwanda, the most corrupt government in Africa, bar none. Uh, and you are to wait in detention centers in Rwanda, apparently, until your case is determined. Yeah. Now, uh, this is profiteering, you know, as I think I said on the head, this is the profiteering of suffering. But it's but it's breathtakingly racist and colonial in nature as well, of course. Uh, but but this is again, you you will see in media this this picture painted of concern and care for the developing world and uh, the tragedy of children drowning off the shores of Italy or Great Britain trying to cross the channel, all of these, and yet what they're doing is shipping them back to a nightmare dictatorship uh, from the very continent they came from in a situation that will be worse than that which they left. Varun? Yeah, I think one, I think there is a very interesting common thread that runs between the ideas of smart cities, um, the entertainment cycle of series and, and cinema, and war in the sense that it's predicated, all the narrative is predicated that community and the individuals are scattered and that they have to be unified and they can only be unified by empire. So all of that, is predicated on the fact that they th the chaos that has been created by their own action is something that they're now trying to rectify by monetizing it and by making people even further disconnected so that's quite interesting to see that all the whether it's whether it's this kind of humanizing of the of the military aspect or it's some kind of behavioral adjustment that happens in these sitcoms which resolves a plot or it's going to be some new technological advance that is going to now create a really great community for you, which you can walk through. It's all predicated on the fact that they are the ones who are going to unify life on the planet. It's not going to be anything else, right? Yeah, um, yeah no, uh, it's true. Um, okay, uh, I, I just want to mention uh, that <clears throat> The other common thread here, or the or the question, perhaps that is being begged by everyone's comments tonight, I think, has to do in the broadest sense with people's relationship to culture today. I I happen to believe that the role art stroke culture plays is profoundly important. And like everything else, except that this is perhaps more foundational art and culture, it has been 
hijacked or appropriated by a kind of corporate mentality by the ruling class, really. It is, you know, Marx was right, the values of the ruling class trickle down and become the values of the society. So we are seeing these various agendas, the woke agenda, for example, and now this boulderizing of children's books, whether it's Ursula Le Guin or Roald Dahl or anything, not, not because the ruling class cares about Roald Dahl's children's books, but because people are so heavily indoctrinated, they have so little purchase on history and, and the, the society they live in, its historical underpinnings, the forces that have shaped it. Uh, my recent blog post was on that, that sense that people have of the inevitability of capitalism, this mythology that is attached to it. But that, that this kind of strange anodyne um, characterless, bloodless commentary is, is what comes out of, of museums and academia and, and galleries and, and uh, theaters and uh, dance venues, whatever it is. There is, there is something now of, of this conformity and, and characterless, detailless, generalized pablum that, that infects everything. And it's very hard to fight against now, I think, because so many people have, are either worn out, they sit home taking their antidepressants, or they're just exhausted, or the younger generations are so indoctrinated that that resistance is is short-circuited at the beginning. Now, my one corrective to that, and then I want to hear from you guys, is you know there are millions of people on the streets of France right now protesting, mm -hmm. and we're not getting very much media coverage of it. And Macron's repression of those protests, violent repression by the police is really shocking, actually. Uh, so some people are aware something is badly wrong with the human condition right now. It's not, we're not alone in recognizing this. Corey. Yeah, I mean, lots of respect to those people on the streets of France. That's amazing to see. I wanted to touch base upon um, also how all what we're talking about, what Broom was talking about as well in the 15 minute cities tie into this. And I think Johan's mentioned it before, tying into this quest for efficient, efficiency, right? Is another big part of the language, the framing is some sort of future utopia. And you know what I feel personally is the exact opposite. I feel like the more in my life, and I'm maybe I'm crazy, I don't know, the more tech I feel like I'm almost forced to, to use for whatever, for bills, to, to go on, um, even you know, to look at my x-rays on my knee, like whatever it is, the more I, I feel like I have to use it, I feel the less time I have to live my real life, right? I, I, 
quality life. Mm -hmm. I feel like it steals my time. And this makes me feel more anxious and more disconnected. And then like a couple of examples this week, for one thing, um, the city's cutting down tree all, I mean, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of trees to make way for a, what's it called? Rapid, rapid, rapid bus transit, BRT. And, um, I, you know, it was strange because no one get, no one seems to give a fuck. And then I saw Winter Oak shared a tweet about in the UK and some country, they're actually cutting down all the trees at night because people yeah. don't want to yeah. cut. So they're going down kind of 5G, yeah. Right. Yeah. And this is all just becoming normal and no one really notices. And um this week I had to get a light fixture. And it was sort of sickening because okay. The light fixture. So I don't know if you guys have bought a light fixture now. Probably everyone knows this except for me. But now the lights all being sold. The light, you know how we're all, you know, focus on your light bulbs. Focus on the plastic bags, right? Forget about the fucking war. Focus on your light bulb, right? Focus on shutting your water <laughs> off while you brush your teeth. So the light bulbs now are being basically, I guess, soldered into the actual light fixture. And so when the light um, dies, you throw out the entire fixture. So, yeah, so under, you know, climate emergency bills being passed across the whole world, right, which we know um, that's really done to be able to dip into the public money. But so you have these light fixtures that are being created, Um, the whole entire thing goes in the garbage. And so the ones I was looking at were actually, I don't know, 10 pounds of stainless steel each. And then at the when the light goes, you throw it out. Mm right? And you can't separate. It's all welded together. You can't separate the light bulb from the fixture. You throw out the whole thing and buy a new one. So it's, you know, that's actually insane. In my opinion, this is insane. And, you know, the liberal reformists are always demanding labels, right? Before they did, they want labels on GMO, labels on this, labels on that, labels on wood, what forest it comes from, right? To ignore the problems um, of imperialism, capitalism. But, if we actually labeled these things um, with the embodied energy, right? <laughs> I mean, that light bulb is going to look like nothing. It's the embodied energy, not the not the energy that goes into that light bulb. It's the embodied energy. And then to keep this economy, right, you have appliances and you have to replace them every 10 years or even five years. Maybe that's even too generous because of improved yeah. energy efficiency, Right. So everything is disposable. Forget about the embodied energy. And then absolutely everything is made worse the last 10 years because of of green efficiency. Yeah. And and then this leads to, okay, so all the stores here have stopped using plastic bags and it's hailed as this great success under the Trudeau government government that um, we don't um, give away plastic bags anymore but guess what you can buy them and not only can you buy them you can buy them but you can buy great big um, ugly plastic bags with a thousand times more plastic and in a couple weeks those are going to tear at the seams and you're going to throw them Mm -hmm. out and you know now these you know Weston and all these group all these um, corporate owners are just laughing like why did we give out bags for decades these idiots will pay for bags right, right? right. and not only can we get five cents we can sell a big plastic bag for two dollars and they yeah. all go in the garbage and, and yeah. then we're still producing styrofoam so i mean it just ends up like the, the like mythical 
yeah, the <laughs> fantasy reform. It's yeah, no, but I, I mean, I feel the same way. I mean, this is there needs to be a discussion about the packaging industry. Anyway, they make a point of flying beneath the radar, and nobody investigates the packaging industry because you now have every tiny little thing is packaged and sold to you. If you want to buy one screw or so, it comes in a plastic and cardboard package that right. weighs and 10 times the, the amount of the screw and takes up 20 times the space of the screw on the shelf. And and this leads, John, like this leads all, all this leads to infertility, pollution, disease, microplastics like this doesn't vanish. People, I, I've heard people say, oh, well, that plastic eventually breaks down. No, it breaks down into microplastics, which then go into our water and we drink them into our bodies, into breast milk. And so like even styrofoam is still being produced. And so anyway, yeah. it's just yeah. fucking. No, I mean, but the hypocrisy that runs across all of this, I think actually is becoming apparent to a lot of people. And I think you hear that and you, if you read the signs in the protests in, in mm. Paris, and there's going to be protests elsewhere, people know a lot of this because the propaganda now is so crude and so stupid because the ruling class, the owners of these uh, industries, don't care anymore because they're, you know, they have absolute impunity. They don't, they can't be prosecuted. They don't go to prison. They don't go to jail. They don't get fired. Nothing nothing. They have impunity, they have total power, and they can do what they want. So they don't try very hard to fool people anymore, because they don't have to. Oh, so you all hate us. So what? <laughs> uh, Johan. Sure, this might seem a bit disjointed. <clears throat> I'm not sure how, how this uh, I'm about to say connects with what just uh, what Corey just discussed. Maybe in, in the sense that consumption becomes part of the propaganda somehow. But Anyway, you mentioned, John, how, how a TV show kind of does its job through this, this formulaic connection of pre-produced pieces of, of the stereotypical parts according to an established pattern, and it nonetheless works. It kind of does its job. It produces a desired effect. Uh, and I, I thought of a, a part in, in Jacques Ellul's uh, book, Propaganda, which I, I would like to quote. It connects very closely to this. So, so he says, that the more the individual is captured by propaganda, the more sensitive he is not to its content, but to the impetus it gives him, to the excitement it makes him feel. The smallest excitement, the feeblest stimulus activates his conditioned reflexes, awakens the myth, and produces the action that the myth demands. Up to this point, an enormous amount of manipulation, a substantial dose of cleverly coordinated stimuli, was required to achieve this in him, but now the motivating drives of, of his psyche has, has been reached and his attitudes has been broken and new behavior has been determined. And he continues now that the, the individual has been filled with and reshaped by propaganda, action by all of these methods is no longer necessary. The smallest dose now suffices. It is enough to refresh, to give a, a booster shot, to repaint and the individual base in striking fashion. Uh, and moreover, then he, he, the individual, this is the kind of core quote, the individual no longer offers any resistance to propaganda, uh, he has ceased to believe in it consciously, he no longer attaches importance to what it says, to its proclaimed objectives, but he acts according to the proper stimuli. 
So, so it doesn't matter if we, we have to throw away the entire light fixture with the, the light bulb. I mean, the, the contradiction doesn't matter anymore because we behave as we're supposed to behave nonetheless. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. I mean, I, I, I wrote exactly about that, interestingly, coincidentally, in, in the current blog post, the Rebuilding Jerusalem blog post. Uh, it, 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 it is, I think it is a combination of three things, maybe. One is the erosion of meaning in language mm. that, that Barun touched on, that, and that people's thinking is increasingly solipsistic. So, so there is difficulty uh, for people to think logically through at any great length um, on any particular subject. That's number one. Number two is maybe in contradiction to that, there are people who hate everything, are angry, who recognize the problems, and I think these people feel a sense of futility and, and fatigue and, and, um, and frustration because there is no organization. And I don't have an entire solution to offer for that. There is none. And it feels as if the concentration of power today is so acute that, that resistance is futile. I don't know. It feels that way. And that's the illusion that I think the ruling class and the governments want to encourage in people. Um, <clears throat> resistance is futile. Uh, and, and, but the third thing is that uh, uh, I, th I think he's right. And I think that marketers, Madison Avenue has come to recognize that, that, uh, uh, that, that all they need to do is, is um, present a few coded cues, a few dog whistles that relate to previous propaganda, previous narratives of, of whatever the topic is, whatever the area of existence is that we're talking about. Uh, and that's enough. Uh, and, and, and that, that has led to this thing, so I'm working towards a point here. That has led to this thing that I was trying to get at in the blog post, which I called the unconscious of propaganda, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. The propaganda has fostered its own unconscious in a sense, that, that there is a, 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 a almost dialectical reversal that, that is out there that, that propaganda starts to mean its opposite and its opposite starts to mean the original propaganda it, that that it almost operates on its own uh, uh, volition in a sense and and you can look at the woke the various woke agendas and see aspects of this I think uh, there's a very smart comment by a longtime reader George uh, who's a very smart guy on my blog but he makes some very good points the last couple of posts. Um, if you look at the trans marketing, the, the, one of the things that is clear, of course, is the acute misogyny involved, mm. but that there's the, the, these men 
who dress like women and wear wigs and identify as women are very often, if not usually, at least as presented in media, very ugly, very unattractive. Now there are beautiful trans people, I mean, beautiful, but we're not seeing them somehow. We're seeing these incredibly absurd, ugly men. And I feel like that is in almost, un well, it's an unconscious hatred of women that is being manifested in this entire project. It is even these stupid looking men who were really ugly dressed as women are still more authentic than real women. And it's a, there's a, I don't know at what level this stuff is, is consciously intentional or not, but um, this is all by way of saying, read my blog post and read George's comment because it, there, there's something going on with, with the way propaganda in quotation marks is working today that is mysterious to me and uh, 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 and I, I don't have a I don't have a punchline to this it's mysterious Hiroyuki I think it's it's definitely uh, um, I mean stuff like that would contribute to the uh, divisiveness in the uh, culture sphere and uh, that's one thing and also um, I think most of us understand that uh, things are not that great. Um, there's a awful things going on and there's nothing we can do. And those things would lead to hopelessness, like you, you know, you said, just said. Um, yeah. And also, um, you know, some, some of us like us, we see it in the uh, structural mechanism of um, society guided by the capital and uh, how uh, hierarchy is structured. And we try to understand that this formation is not good. This mm -hmm. is not working. All the things that are happening are because of this, but many of us see it as um, just the fact that things need to change. So as a whole, we, um, makes this momentum for something. And, uh, and this something is always um, harvested um, um, by the capitalist um, structure because it needs to shift its direction to change the market for uh, perpetuating the uh, uh, structure, the power structure and the financial system. It needs to shift in somehow so that uh, it can perpetuate itself. So, um, so this is a tough uh, place. We, we, we will see a lot of conflict among us because we are hearted and shaped by the uh, uh, entire structure. Meanwhile, we have the same trajectory for change. We need change. So, you I, know. I, yeah. I. No, I mean, this just brings up one other thing I wanted to say, because I, th I, th I think I think we're all touching on something that's significant here in a sense. Uh, and I just want to bring it back that that the that it's I will provide some links to to um, discussions of of aesthetics. Uh, which I, of course, maintain are hugely important. The, 
but but if you look at, I don't think it's accidental that if you look at the way art is written about there are almost no great critics of art left uh tj clark is very old john berger is gone nobody has replaced them nobody knows how to talk about art and hence they don't know how to talk about culture and if you don't know how to do that you start employing the crudest and most reactionary tropes and 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 uh, explanations possible and it's you know adorno said this great thing we were talking about this offline this week he said this incredibly profound thing that the radical nature of art is found in its uselessness mm. and what he meant by that was in its form and not in its opinions or content or message and that he said somewhere that verbal descriptions mock the those trying to the artwork mocks verbal descriptions of it that and it's all taught today as if the purpose of making an artwork or being creative is to then later find a, an explanation of its meaning and message. And that's mm. fundamentally wrong. That's all I, I mean, it's just too complicated a discussion for a podcast, but that is fundamentally wrong. That is not what art and culture does. Varun? You'd mentioned two uh, kinds of people, I think, uh, in terms of um, how people have become very solipsistic. And then you also spoke about what happened to the unconscious, I think. Um, the atomism and the material determinism that comes with atomistic thinking, that has taken over the world entirely. So there is no exit yeah. from that. In that sense that the subconscious or the unconscious in that actually has been replaced with capitalism. So there is no there is no archetypal symbolism in, in the subconscious and the unconscious anymore that leads out of the prison of capitalism in that sense. And so that well, the, yeah, yeah. there is this kind of resignation which leads into the frustration that I think has risen quite a lot in the last word, what Hiroyuki is also mentioning. And I think the establishment noticed that and that's why they had to kind of strengthen their hold on everything that they thought would be a threat, right? So people started, I think the internet kind of fed us old knowledge that was being suppressed in some ways where there could be um, a critique of capitalism in a sense. And people were organizing in some ways and there were movements that were starting to spring up even if they were small. and that it, and it became very necessary for them to shut all of that down to take all of it over and that's i think yeah. what the great reset is essentially i think that's very perceptive and true and you could exchange you could replace the word capitalism because that's true though capital with with exchange value that 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 ratio that 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 structural um, figure permeates everything. Everything became a, 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 a capitalist relationship, meaning an exchange value relationship. And, and, 
and exploitation was baked into everything as somehow organically necessary. And I see on social media, apropos of this, I have seen this week a number of articles once again, I mean, confusing fascism and communism. Oh, it's just the same thing. And Peter Hitchens, ostensibly an intelligent, educated man, though clearly mentally ill, uh, with his 18,000 Twitter, Twitter followers, was talking about how the Nazis were actually identical to left-wing communists, and in fact, were really friendly with left-wing communists. <laughs> now, the historical record contradicts this absolutely. It's nonsensical, of course. And countless people got on his thread and said, Peter, you're out of your know, This is not so. But, but at, there was another guy promoting Anthony Sutton's revisionist histories, uh, which are just garbage. I've seen a marked increase in, in uh, tweets and social media articles about the Austrian school, about Hayek and, and what's his name, uh, Hoppy and you know Anne Rand and these people. Uh, this imbecilic kind of selfishness is good trope and, and the idea that Marx mangled dialectics, the real dialectics is, is found in, I don't know, you know, John Birch Society literature or something, who knows. But it is, it is this very badly educated part of the populace that is becoming more and more visible too. And the conflation of socialism, communism with fascism seems to have uh, attraction that is never going to leave us. And it's, it's, a, it's a very, it's very revealing, I think. And, and, and these people need to be corrected no matter what, because it's a very destructive line of thinking, because what it's doing is normalizing fascism absolving the ruling class, absolving capitalism. Uh, and, you know, the blame is all on, on those horrible Bolsheviks back in 1917 and the residue of that sticks to Putin. And I, I will add Max Perry wrote a great article a while back on the Orientalism of, of all this Russophobia. And it's a very good piece because it's exactly true. Okay, um, Varun and then Hiroyuki. Yeah, I just wanted to add, I think it's also that that this is, again, like this kind of revisionism that's going on. It's like this hammering on continuously. It's like this advertising campaign. But it also works in a way to re kind of um, reestablish the connection of the individual with the self continuously. So now if the if the individual's relationship with the self is capitalized, then there is nothing else but propaganda for them to talk about, mm -hmm. right? Like there is nothing else anymore. So if yeah, that's, that's what's that being, certainly what it feels like, yeah. 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 Well, if that's what's Hiro being fed, fed to the yeah. public, then yeah. I'm anyway, sorry, no, I'm done. I'm, no, no, I'm done. I'm... Yeah, I, I just I just feel that um it's um uh as we look into these things, you know, we we can't help but realize that everything is really connected. You know, when we talk about uh, all the reactionary uh, ideas, uh, it's gotta be that way because uh, 
options are limited, you know, the, in the ideas, uh, you know, it's okay to change about um, uh, revisions. It's okay to talk about change in incrementally within the system, but we can't talk about what's wrong essentially with the um, um, the system itself. And if that's the case, we it's natural to see the increase in the uh, reactionary ideas because that's the only place people can go. And uh, especially when we are hearted and shaped uh, in many ways to think that way. So um, it's a it's a it's a it's a very difficult situation. But it, it, at the same time, we see it clearly. We we see it in every aspect. We can make sense out of this. It's so easy to see once we start to looking at it. You know, like well, alienation. Is- you know the. Uh, the the division and the alienation and we feel this also goes back into um, the entire process you know this it, is this is why I think um, education is so important why Johan and I and Varun and all of us really but we we've, we've talked about somehow initiating a kind of people's university right I I think that people, need to be re-educated uh, and, and maybe this starts with aesthetics maybe because I value that highly but I see it as as the launch pad for a lot of other uh, uh, deformations in thought and and the, the rise of kind of junk science and a scientism and instrumental thinking positivism and you know we're reaching we're reaching a kind of crisis point in all of these fields uh, in, in which and this is the solipsism again too but but the quantum physics hasn't made a discovery in 40 years of any real meaning they just keep recycling the same stuff using imaginary numbers and it would all collapse without those imaginary numbers and it's all hypothetical and and they spend a jillion dollars with the you know the particle collider in Bern, Switzerland, and then they come up with some more they think, you know, protons or something that split apart from it and lasted half a nanosecond, a billionth of a second. And I think, geez, I don't know, you know, a billionth of a second for $25 billion. Is that really, you know? The cost value ratio really making sense there. I don't know, but the but the point is, I for me this goes back to to philosophy and art. The people have to learn how to think, how to speak, what language means, what words mean, what logic is, and start there. Johan, no, I was just thinking about what Varun said. I thought there was a brilliant observation that there is a commodification of our relationship to ourselves, because isn't that exactly what the, the what the transhumanist and, and transgender discourse is, is very much about? I also wanted to leave you with a quote that kind of relates to the uh, the the emptying of meaning in terms of, of art and culture it's actually the the last uh, the last few few lines from from the Tao Te Ching uh, and I'll just I'll just give them to you and, and we can go on 
it means truthful words are not pleasant pleasant words are not trustworthy those who are good do not dispute those who are disputatious are not good those who know are not learned and those who are learned do not know the sage does not store up things for himself the more he does for people the more he has the more he gives the more he gains the way of heaven is benefiting not harming the way of the sage is acting, not contending. Um, that's a good place to sort of arrive at final thoughts. I, I think that um, you know Wittgenstein has always <clears throat> loomed as very important for me because maybe just because of my personal history, the, the time I read him, in New York, I was working as a dishwasher, and um, uh, I was very young. Still, I was twenty-three or something, and uh, that was all I read for a year. I started with the Blue and Brown books, and I've worked for it. And and what still to this day remains important for me in Wittgenstein is is to constantly examine the words you use mm. and and know that i mean just i was reading a paragraph by thierry de Duve, who's an aesthetics philosopher i don't know he teaches at hunter college or somewhere i think he's kind of an idiot but anyway and i was reading this paragraph of his and and he was talking about enjoyment and that art was universal empathy or something and i thought what a load of shit this is um what does that word mean in this context i i so wanted to i so wished i was in his class and i could raise my hand professor this, what what does that mean to you here but that kind of question comes up for me a lot because because i felt that this is what Wittgenstein, this was his great insight, is that we confuse ourselves all the time. And we all do it. I do it. We all do it. Um, when we, we talk about the commodification of the self, yes, I'll buy that. I think that's very insightful. I think there's other ways to say it too. All of them require a deeper um, investigation. Uh, we all need to then sit down and talk about what we mean by a commodity. Then we talk mm. about, you know, capitalism some more and all of the ways in which reification and alienation and all rose out of out of this this enterprise of exploitation that is capitalism. I'm just saying that that, that these are like statements that open you know, we all should be spending weeks sitting on the beach talking about just those mm. two sentences. That's mm. what we should be doing if we really want to improve the world somehow. I think I'm probably sounding like a crazy person now. Okay, Varun, <laughs> final thoughts from everybody? Yeah, just to add to the physics, quantum physics idea, it was, I, mean, I think even till about a decade ago, there was still called theoretical physicists. And then all the publications are now only calling them physicists. And then that's turned into quantum physicists. So yeah, there is yeah. an erasure. 
there is an erasure there that it's only theory and it's not it's just this blatant mm. waste of money <laughs> that's happening <laughs> that's yeah, really not doing much for anybody right no now. no so it's I, quite, I, quite interesting how that language is being used right like, that's, that's a really good point that's a really good point yeah yeah that's true hiroyuki yeah, I, um, so I think this kind of relates to, uh, um, uh, so I, uh, uh, I tried the, uh, the AI uh, thing, the software, uh, um, what was that? Oh, right, uh, yeah. Uh, what's the thing Chat called? Chatbox or whatever Chat, it is. Yeah. Uh, Chat, Chat GPT. Chat GPT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, you know, I wanted to see uh, what it says about uh, the fact that it's operating in this capitalist framework, you know, the, the imperial uh, <laughs> sphere. So, you know, yeah. so I, I actually had a conversation <laughs> with it. And uh, it, 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 I get the calls and, um, you know, responses. Uh, and and it, it's, it's capable of framing it in um, uh, interesting ways and uh, but it, but if you step back and think about it it's it's really you know it makes you think uh, what is it uh, <laughs> what is, what's the meaning of you know uh, thinking and um, uh, working with the wars and come up with things in within the framework without actually having any effect? in that actual, you know, place. And, uh, and I, yeah. I, you know, I, I really, uh, this was interesting experience, you know, and it, it also, like you're saying, it relates to what we are doing as well. You know, we can say things, we can uh, think about the meanings, uh, we can think about how we relate to each other, uh, but at the end, you know, what does that really mean in practice? Mm -hmm. You know, it's... It, these are such huge topics. And and I think that the, the chat box thing, the AI, these programs, whatever they are, I haven't even investigated them very much because I have so little interest. But uh, it, it does feel allegorical that, that the chat box is is the story of Western civilization distilled down into a gibberish machine, you know, a, a, a mm. ran, random word generator. That's where we are. That's Western civilization dies as, as you know, an AI uh, gibberish machine. All right, anyone else, Corey, last words? I'm a bit obsessed this week about plastic. That's why I was speaking to the bag thing. Um, and just about the idea that we can solve anything um, with, I mean, the, the problems that we have have to be solved outside of market, you know, market solutions, including even when you think of these bags. And I guess, you know, this week, every time I'm out, I see so much garbage, so much mass, all made of plastic and oil and, you know, chemicals. I see um, stuff going down the sewers into the rivers. There just seems to be garbage everywhere. Even I use a woven bag for my food, which I mostly get from the country or from the market. And even in one of my covers, it seems stuffed with plastic bags and I don't use them, but they come from everything. Oranges are in the plastic bags. Like you said, yep. everything's in the plastic bag carrots so I have all these bags and then when I was looking at those lights um I was touching all the fans and I realized they're all plastic now mm -hmm. like everything's plastic and then if you look at 
um, you know, while they're talking about climate and pretending they care so much about nature. I mean, the boom in the um, building of plastic, ethylene plastic plants, it's massive. You yeah, know, it's, right? huge. it's huge. And yeah. so I wonder, um, Johan, you have spoken often about it too, like we both have about resource depletion, you know, and if that's mm. why the plastic is really, I mean, literally, we're drowning in plastic, right? And like, if you look outside of the market solution in a grocery store, if you can imagine any store, every single product in that store comes out of a box, right? Yes, every single this thing, is, absolutely. Right? This is the packaging industry. Right. Yes. So let's use the boxes. Why aren't the boxes up there? Why? But now... We can charge for the bags and now it's another industry of selling plastic bags on top, right? So many pennies extra profit from every customer. And that like, you know, that automatically is supposed to be this great victory. And yet it's like just more, um, now we're really, um, you know, tied into the plastic bag industry by doing that. And, you know, it just strikes me how everything is becoming more and more insane, how we just keep looking at, to find technological solutions instead of solutions that are right there, like those boxes that everything came out of, right? Yeah. It, it no, put, look at and, the packaging industry is it never, and it's never talked about. Oh, and, and I just wanted to say on one thing, I think everyone should know, I've been thinking of it each time. Um, Vroom, what time are you, what time is it there? Um, it's half past two in the morning. Yeah, I mean, thank you. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> yeah. our listeners know that Bruin actually gets up in the middle of the night to join us on this podcast. From That's the, yeah. true. And uh, yeah, I appreciate <laughs> yeah. it. It's very hard. We're all on different continents and it's very hard for somebody who's in, if some of us are talking in the morning, some at night, Bruin is talking in the middle of the night. So um, I appreciate all of you for doing that. And uh, that reminded me, there was an old joke, a comedian woman and you talked about yeah you go to the store to buy a waste basket and they give you a little waste basket and they put it in a bag for you and you take it home take it out of the bag and then you crumple up the bag and put it in the waste basket that's the nature of packaging you know Every, it is the mo it is the industry of the useless i think 80 percent of what we buy doesn't need to be packaged at all but but um, it's the number two or three biggest industry in the world. War, pornography, pharmaceuticals, and packaging. Okay, and thank it's, you. It's yeah, yeah, go ahead, Corey. No, no, no. No, please. it's just like we talk about oil and fossil fuels. It's all, you know, NGOs talk about who are pushing climate, and that's completely ignored. All these masks, all these bags, everything, oil and chemicals. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, pollution is real. Climate emergency is not. And it, it just stopped with the facade at this point. I mean, should, I feel like, my God, does anybody still believe, you know, that, 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 that recycling and is going to help with climate? I mean, my God, just stop, just stop. Okay, that's all. Um, thank you, everyone. Johan, Varun, Hiroyuki, Corey, really great that you are back. Thank you. And, um, I'm glad we did this, you know, this time within a week instead of a month. So yeah, thanks, great. everybody. I will talk to you all soon. Thanks to Jack Littman. Where are you? And thank <laughs> <laughs> Jack Littman. Yes, yes. 
of Champion Jack in LA. Thank you, Jack. Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks. Good night.